If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of First Thessalonians. Uh, we'll be looking in verses 9 through 12 of that book this morning. We are on verse 9 because last week Josh helpfully led us through the first eight verses of this book. And he was helpful in showing us the contrast between what Paul wanted to be, what he wanted to do, and what he was not. He says he was vain, or he wasn't vain, excuse me, but he was bold. He didn't come with empty promises, but with the gospel. He came not with false motives, but with God's approval behind him. He didn't seek to please men, but instead sought to please God. He wasn't self-seeking, but he was rather gentle. And he wasn't aloof, but invested in the people of Thessalonica. Paul had to do this because there were plenty of people around who weren't like this. The preaching of the gospel has always been a source and will always continue to be a source for people who seek to gain from the gospel. Not gain from the gospel through the blessings of God, but gain through the gospel through the wallets of men. This is true then and it is true now. Hucksters, tricksters, and peddlers of God's word were always prevalent. So much so that people today typically don't see religion so much as a problem as they do organized religion. And when they use the words organized religion, they say that in the same way they would say organized crime, and they almost mean the exact same thing by it. And frankly, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference because there are so many people out there who simply want to peddle the word of God. It is interesting that already in 1 Thessalonians, whether it is about the work of the gospel going forward or whether it is about peddlers of other religions, that this was something that Paul sought to clear his name from. In other places in scripture, we find him having to do this in numerous locations. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says the amazing thing that we are not like so many peddlers of God's word that there were many peddlers of God's word. There were many people out there to trick and to confuse people. He says, but we are men of sincerity, commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. In one of the most amazing passages in scripture, which is overlooked, in Philippians 1, Paul says these words, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I am put here in defense of the gospel. So those latter preach it out of goodwill. They think that Paul's locked up, so we need to make sure that we are taking the gospel out. He goes on to say, though, the former, who preach out of envy and rivalry, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He says, they see that I'm locked up. And they say, ah, well, now we can really stick it to Paul because I'm a better preacher than Paul. I'm a better missionary than Paul. And so I'm going to make him suffer all the more. And while he's in prison, I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to make myself known as much as Paul's name is known. I'm going to stick it to him. Wally Pip has gone to the bench and it's time to step up. Paul goes on to say, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He says, if you want to preach Christ out of selfish ambition, so long as you are preaching Christ and the gospel, you go right ahead. That's an amazing statement. They're trying to stick it to him. They're trying to make him look bad, and he's okay with it, so long as Christ is proclaimed. Now, of course, selfishly ambitious reasons were not the best, and certainly not what Paul was motivated by. His reasons were tied directly to the gospel. He acted and preached and taught the way he did because the gospel impelled him to do so. That can be seen, I think, very clearly in the verses before us today. 
Last week, Josh noted these contrasts between what Paul was and what he was not. If you wanted to think of it in terms of questions, it was the what of who he was. What was he? He was not greedy. He was not coming in vanity. He was not somebody who sought men's approval. What did he do? What didn't he do? But now in verses 9 through 12, I think that he turns most appropriately to the reasons why. Let us read those four short verses today. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the righteous, high, and inerrant word of God. Paul has previously described what he was, but now he seeks to explain to us why he was like that. And most of this description hangs on that small little phrase, the gospel of God. It is kind of an interesting expression. You don't have to hang too much on it, but it's rarely used in scripture, the gospel of God. It's used only five times. Three of them come in 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Usually it's attached to the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ or it's left as a blank there. But here he proclaims it is the gospel of God. The question becomes then, what is this gospel? The gospel means nothing but good news. It was good news of God that was preached. It is probably best seen as a contrast back with verse 9, where in chapter 1, verse 9, he talked about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That they, they had been serving idols, but instead of serving those idols, after the good news of God came to them, they started to serve the living and true God. And in much of, of what we have heard today, whether it was the reading in 1 Corinthians, whether it was the readings in Jeremiah, idols have been a focus of that worship. Idols are really strange. Because I think that I am not alone, and even before I was a believer, thinking that idol worship was a very odd thing. It's a very modern take. Why would people worship things that they've crafted themselves? Why would they worship wood? Why would they worship metal? What is the purpose of that? They made it. They know that this thing doesn't have any power. Not only does Jeremiah 3 talk about this stupidity, but Isaiah 44, 9 through 20, has a beautiful passage that talks about the, the idiocy of going out and planting a tree and then having God pour rain and water down upon it so that it would grow so that when you have need, you can cut it down, you can make a fire, you can bake bread over that fire, you can uh, roast beef over, or lamb, or they didn't have much beef, there weren't cows back then, but they would, they would roast something. They, there were cows back then. I'm off track. There were cows back then. The Israelites weren't eating a lot of cow. So they, they would have their lamb, they would roast it over the fire, they then would take the other half of that log, they would craft it into something and worship it. In other words, God continually gave them everything they needed, including that wood, which was used for the fire to do everything else that they needed to do, and then they turned around and worshipped the wood. It doesn't make any sense. Why is this appealing to so many people? It's ubiquitous throughout the Old Testament. It's pretty ubiquitous throughout the New Testament as well. Why was this so appealing to people? 
I think in the end it's simply because it gave sinners, and it is indeed sin, but because it gives sinners something to hope in. Something to deal with with the chaos and the calamities of life. Listen, death is something that we can kind of pull ourselves away from today, but death was something that previous generations had no doubt about. They saw it in their living rooms. They saw it on their couches. They saw it in their families. It was rampant in all of society. Whether you were a king or whether you were a peasant, death was always prevalent. It was there. And this made the world ultimately chaotic. It made it random. It made it capricious. And it made it arbitrary. There was no control of anything. If your wife's not getting pregnant, you have no control over that. If harvest is not coming along as it ought to, If after you harvest, you find that your crops have blight. If you're not getting the rain that you need, or you're getting too much sun. How do you keep the locusts from attacking? Everywhere you go, there is an attack on your life. And there is an attack on the things that give you life. An appeal to idols was this last desperate attempt to gain control over any of it. Yet... Even while it is desperate, at least our forefathers knew what they were doing. They at least knew enough to know that they couldn't control such things on their own. We don't think that idols are necessary, not because we think that we need something else to help us control, but because we honestly think that we can control this stuff. We think that we can engineer, we can science, we can do all of these things to make and manipulate creation and and death and all of the things that are chaos in our world and we can bring them under our thumb and we can bring them under our control. We are fools. We should have listened to Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, but we have chosen not to. And because of that, we continue in our idolatry of ourselves. And this is why the good news is truly good news for us. If you were a Roman person, when you heard good news, when you heard that there is gospel for you, that would have faint echoes of the calling forward of an emperor. That is, it was good news for the Roman Empire because the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was going to be going forward. That all these minor little skirmishes and these minor little civil wars and these provincial battles that happened all over the Roman Empire were finished and done with because Rome had their foot on the throat of every single person. So there was no war. There was a sense of peace, no matter how forced that peace might have been. And as long as there was an emperor sitting on that throne, at least part of the chaos of the world was finished and done with, and there was order. It might not be an order you liked, but there was order. This is why the calling of Jesus Christ good news is indeed good news, because that chaos is over with and done. Now, at the beginning of the good news, it doesn't seem like that's true. The good news is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the death of Jesus Christ seems like it is nothing but chaos and disorder reigning again. Jesus being sent from God was not known, for, was not known as the Messiah that he claimed to be. His own people rejected him. They murdered him without very good reason in a show trial. God did not intervene. This is the very thing that makes people run to idols. It is injustice. It is oppression. It is death. It is chaos. It is the very thing that makes people run to idols. So it seems as though the good news is not good news at all. That everything continues just as it was from the foundation of the world. Chaos wins and death has its victory. But then, 
God demonstrates that this isn't random. This isn't the victory of chaos or the victory of death, but indeed it is part of his overarching and sovereign plan. That from the beginning of the world he had planned this. That it wasn't chaos, but that Jesus must die to have victory. That the world is not spinning out of control, but it does exactly what God has always wanted it to do. That he is sovereign and good. And therefore, you can turn from your idols and you can know the peace of God. Of course, this meant dealing with sin. The only reason why the world is chaos, the only reason why death is present is because of our sin. And so Jesus must deal with sin on a grand scale over all of creation and putting an end to death and sin, but he almost also must deal with it on a personal level in dealing with ours. This is the gospel that Paul preached. And realize how unbelievable this is. Paul comes to Thessalonica and following in his wake are stories of his death, or not his death, but story, that'd be funny, uh, stories of his imprisonment, stories of his beatings, stories of his, the riots that came, all the chaos and death continually hanging over his head. And yet here is a man who shows up with everything that the world is running from, the whole reason why they're turning to idols to escape these things. This man has them following him and he's filled with joy and peace and love. They look at that. I mean, that's, that's everything that people who worship idols wants in the midst of everything they seek to avoid. All the world is crumbling around him, and he has peace with God. Paul had what they wanted despite the chaos of the world. The dumb and mute idols that they served could not give them this. And so Paul preached to them the gospel, that he is in control. Not Paul, but Jesus reigns and is in control that he seeks and loves you, that he has called you by his name. The reason why Paul acts the way he does is because he is motivated by that gospel. The gospel impels him to do what he has done. Paul handles himself because he knows that in least some way, the medium is indeed the message. How you carry yourself when you carry the gospel with you impacts the nature of the gospel. What you win people with is what you win them to. And so Paul comes first with concrete compassion like the gospel. Concrete compassion like the gospel. The gospel is unlike other religions in a couple of ways. First, it is unlike other religions in that it is built on history. So if you were to go to someone who was Muslim and you were to talk to him and be very careful with how you talk to them, but to talk to them and say, listen, I know that you believe that Muhammad received revelation from Allah in a cave 14, 1500 years ago. I know that you believe that. But let's say just for argument, when I know that you don't believe this, but just for argument, that Allah were to reveal himself in a different way. He wouldn't reveal himself maybe to Muhammad, but to somebody else. I know that you don't believe that he did that, but let's say that he did. Would that substantially change the Quran? Would that substantially change your religion at all, but that substantially changed the nature of who Allah is? The answer to that is, of course, no. No. It, it, it was brought to us through history, they would say, but it, it doesn't have any, any impact on history. That is, that it, history doesn't change the truth or the falsity of Islam. It's not truly historical. It might have happened in history, but the truth of the matter isn't truth on the ground. 
all of the world religions are exactly the same. Whether Buddha lived and said the things that he did don't impact really whether or not Buddhism is correct. The same with Hinduism and the stories of the Vishnu and other things. They don't actually impact the truthfulness of what they're trying to say. They are always theological or philosophical or abstract or theoretical, but Christianity is none of these things in its intense and most concentrated form. Christianity is necessarily built off of history, and if it is not, it is wrong. It claims that. It claims that if this is not true, then you have no reason to listen to it. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. He will go on and say, listen, what Ecclesiastes said to you is true. If this world is all you get, is life under the sun is all you get, then you better go down to Culver's, buy as many burgers as you can, and drink as much beer as you want because there is nothing else to life. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die and there is no hope for you. But Paul also argues that Christ has indeed been raised. There is better things for you here. God has not just told us that he loves us. It is not something theoretical. It is not something supposed. But he has made that love and compassion concrete in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That it is historical. That God sent his son because he loved the world and Christ laid down his life because he loved you. It isn't a theory. It isn't something that you get to test out it isn't something that you get to suppose and you get to work through philosophically or theologically. It is a fact to be trusted. The love and compassion of Jesus is forever scarred on his hands and his feet. In John 20, when he shows up to his disciples, he places his hands out. They put their hands in his and they feel the scars where the nails were. They put their hands on his side where the the spear pierced him, and they utter, my Lord and my God. We don't theorize about Christ's love. It is written all over him in history. God loves us, and we have a clear, concrete demonstration of it. Paul acts likewise. Before, much of what he talked about were inner dispositions. He says, I came with boldness, or I didn't come with greed. I came to please God. It's really hard to prove those things, especially in the matter of just a couple of weeks. So he calls on God as his witness in verse 5. But notice what we have continually before us in this passage. Verses 9, verses 10, and verse 11. You remember, brothers, you are witnesses, and you know. Three times in these four verses, he appeals not to what he felt as an inner disposition, but directly to what the Thessalonians knew. You knew how we labored and we toiled for you. You knew how we worked for you. You knew how righteous and holy and blameless we were. You knew how we exhorted and how we pushed you. There was no doubting his compassion. There was no doubting his love for them. There was no doubting his desire for them. He didn't have to claim it as a theory. It was proof on the ground. He doesn't appeal to God. He appeals to them. He says, you know these things because I live this out among you. Is that how we are in our lives? 
Is our compassion actually concrete in the people that we love? Or is it more of a theory? Do we speak it or do we actually live it out in our lives? I often ask you to be introspective, and, and that's a really good thing. You should always be asking questions of yourself. You should always be questioning your motives for things. But sometimes the heart is deceptively wicked, and you need other people to rely on. So when you take an inventory of yourself and you go through the fruit of the Spirit, don't just analyze your own fruit, but have other people do it. Ask them, do I, do I actually make known to you my love? Not simply by speaking it. But if I were mute and I couldn't write you notes, would you know by my actions that I loved you? We talk about joy. And you can have joy in your heart all you want to. Do people naturally describe you as a joyful person? Or would they naturally think of you more as a grump and a complainer? Do you have hope, true hope for the church in the world? Do you have hope in God's sovereignty and his good plan for your life and for the life of those around you? Or are you continually bemoaning the youth in our country? Are you continually bemoaning the trajectory of the church? Are you continually bemoaning the trajectory of our country as though there is no hope? Go through those things. Ask questions of yourself, but ask questions of those around you. Our compassion and our love must be like Jesus. He didn't just talk about God's love for us. He demonstrated it to us. Let our love be likewise. Let our lives and our love for one another, the very fruit that we bear, be visible and manifest to all people. Just as the gospel makes the compassion of God clear, so Paul embodies it and so ought we. Second, Paul unburden, unburdens unbelievers for the gospel. He unburdens unbelievers for the gospel. The second way that the gospel is different from all other world religions is, unlike maybe universalism, but I think that that's even wrong, it is a pure gift. It requires nothing from the people who receive it. Every other religion requires something out of you, either stated explicitly or implicitly behind the scenes. It desires something out of you in order to be saved, in order to experience the bliss or the happiness or the joy of God or whatever it is that they're holding out for you. There is work for you to put in. But the gospel is unlike this. We did not seek out the gospel, but the gospel came to us. No one called for Jesus to come down from heaven, but he was sent from heaven. No one thought it up and proposed it to God in prayer, and God said, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Let's try that. It was not something that came to us from our merit or as a loan that we somehow have to pay back from God. If you think that you are in debt to God for the gospel, I have news for you. You might be, but you're never paying it back, and you ought not try because it is a gift that he has given to you. If you want merit, if you want to earn something, the only thing that you will earn is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What God pays out to you, what your sin pays out to you, what you earn is nothing but death and the chaos and destruction that follow along with it. But then Paul says the free gift of God, which is so incredibly odd because saying gift is enough, but he says free gift simply to drive home the point that there is nothing that you've done to earn it. Your wages are death, but there is a free gift. It comes to you without asking. It comes to you without your knowledge sometimes, hitting you from out of left field. You didn't know. You didn't seek out religion. Someone came up to you on the street and talked to you about it. 
God has placed no burden on us when he brought us the gospel. He demanded nothing of us. He did not require our merit, our good works. He did not barter. He did not banter. He did not bargain with us. He simply brought it. Even while, Paul says, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now what would people have thought of all of that if Paul shows up in Thessalonica and says, I'm a very learned man. I know the Hebrew scriptures really well. And I've met people. Oh, have I met people. And I want to tell you about some stuff that happened in Jerusalem not too terribly long ago that will impact your life forever. And I have incredibly good news to give to you. But I need a place to sleep. Uh, my friends need some food and water, and I'm going to need you to put me up. I've got a couple of debts that I need to have canceled, and I need you to kind of clear up stuff for me. And if you do all of that, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the rest of the story, and I'm going to give you the good news. Regardless of how you want to think through that, my understanding of economics isn't the greatest but the minute that you charge for the preaching of the good news is the minute the good news is no longer free. Paul comes to them and he says, listen, we worked and we labored and we toiled. Day and night, we strenuously did everything we could to keep you from having to foot our bill because we didn't want to place a burden on you because the gospel comes to them unburdened. And if he were to place on unbelievers the burden of having to pay him to hear him, at that point in time, the gospel is no longer unmerited. You've earned it because you've paid the apostle of God to tell you what the good news is. This is such a different gospel, such a different attitude than the prosperity gospel, which is a lot like grape nuts because it's neither grape nor nuts and it's not prosperity nor is it gospel, right? It isn't prosperity. It is for the select few who preach it. It's not for the rest of the followers who waste their money, waste their time, and waste their effort on, on a gospel that is no gospel and therefore is never going to be good for them. The whole purpose of the prosperity gospel is to think that the blessing of God comes on you when you are obedient to him. If you do what he says, if you send some seed money or whatever it is that they're going to have you do in any of a number of ways, if you act this way, then God will give you blessing. That is not the gospel. But Paul labors and toils so that they will know that the gospel comes to them free, so that they would be unburdened. And we are to do exactly the same. Honestly, if it weren't so closely tied to worship in Scripture, and it is, but if it weren't so closely tied to Scripture, I would prefer that during our gatherings on Sunday morning, we not even take up an offering because of the way that outsiders view it. So much of the way people view the church is simply that we are after your money. Friend, if you are not a member of this church, we are not after your money. We don't need you to give. We're not asking for you to give. We don't want to imply in any way that we expect those sitting in the pew should give as though this were some sort of theater and you would just witness some sort of show that you were going to pay a ticket for. It is our good pleasure as Crossway Christian Church and her members to allow the preaching of God to go forward, the preaching of God's word to go forward without anything from you. It is our way of unburdening others. We will pay for this gladly out of our own pockets. 
If you feel led by God to give as that goes out, that's fine. Do so. But there should never, ever be any expectation or pressure on you to do so. We desire that the gospel of God be unburdened to those who don't know it. And in one other very important way, I would like to tell you that that should be true, even as we go out into the world. And it's perfectly fine to invite people back to church. It's perfectly fine to say, hey, I've got a good church. I want you to come. I love that. You should do that as often as you can. Come and see the gospel lived out. Come and listen to the word of God. Come listen to the songs of the gospel. Come and listen to the prayers of the people of God. Those are good things. But friends, don't make coming here a burden in order to get the gospel. Don't make that the hurdle that they've got to cross. Don't say, I've got really good news for you. I've got really good news for you. Now, if you would, come on Sunday morning at this appointed time, and I'll give you that good news. Friends, you have the good news with you. Take it to the world. Don't let them be burdened by having to come here to hear the good news. Let us do these things. Let us take the gospel to the world. Whether it is through our missionaries or it is through our own feet, let us take the gospel to the world. And let us do this, not because we somehow earn God's blessings through them, nor because we somehow obtain the favor of men through them, but because the gospel came to us free of charge and it cleared us of our burdens. So it should come to others in the same manner. Paul made his compassion concrete. He unburdened unbelievers, and he also builds up brothers and sisters in the gospel. Paul, thirdly, builds up brothers and sisters in the gospel. Paul knows that the gospel is more than some sort of Willy Wonka golden ticket so that you get to run into this beautiful building where you get to enjoy all of the tasty treats your heart can imagine. But rather, the gospel formed and fashioned his very life, and it formed and fashioned the very way in which he lived. He was willing often and almost always to put his rights aside, rights that were not given to him by a constitution, but rights given to him by God. He is willing to lay those to the side so that he might go forward with the gospel. Whether that is often as a Roman citizen or as a Jew or as an apostle, he put them aside because he knew that there were more important things at play. But Paul knows that this is just not his lot. It's not just something that he does as a missionary or as an apostle but it's something that he wants others to do as well. We are all in the church linked to the great business of sending the gospel out into the nations. And so being a family brought together under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we are linked in the great business, the family business, of taking the gospel to the world. And so Paul says, I became to you like a father. Even as he was like a mother to them, not but a couple of verses earlier, a nursing mother, a mom who understands that her life is not her own anymore. Once that child comes into her life, for at least a couple months and more likely 18 years, her schedule is no longer her own. She doesn't get to decide when she eats, when she sleeps. She doesn't get to decide when she does anything in private anymore. Her life is no longer hers. It belongs to her children until she gently kicks them out of the nest. That is the work of mothers. Fathers, on the other hand, in this passage specifically, get a different tact. And now I know that we're talking in generalities, and I know that this is not always true. Not every mom is as gentle as the mom that Paul might have described. Not every dad is as energetic in pushing his children forward as the dad that Paul is going to describe. But these are generally the way in which mothers and fathers work. He says, as a father, I exhorted you, I encouraged you, and I charged you. Some of the best parts of being a father, 
is pushing your kids to be who you know they can be. And sometimes we want this purely for selfish motives. Isaac has shown an interest in mowing the lawn. I am heartily for that. Um, I want him to be the kind of man who mows my lawn. But there, and my father is wondering why I wasn't the kind of man who mowed his lawn when I was younger. And actually he's probably wondering if Isaac could be the kind of man who mows his lawn as well. So he's got a lot of work in front of him today. So sometimes it's for selfish motives, but at the heart of being a father is having a vision for your children and pressing them, pushing them, encouraging them, exhorting them to become that. It is to have a vision for them and to see that vision played out in their daily lives. This is exactly what Paul says. And certainly you need gentleness and you need compassion on your kids, but you also need firmness as well. Paul says this is exactly what he gave to the Thessalonians. As a nursing mom, as a tender mom, as a caring mom, he was gentle with them. Yet he was not just gentle with them, allowing them to stay where they were, but he pushed them and exhorted them. He did this because they were citizens of another kingdom. This is somewhat difficult for Americans to understand. We have no idea of a national virtue system in which we are told what it means to be a good American. This is completely outside of our thought process. But in ancient times, it was very clear that each region, if you were going to be a good citizen of Athens, there were very clear, very clear virtues that you were to embody in order to be a good citizen of Athens. If you were going to be a good Jewish citizen, there were rules that you followed, virtues that you lived out in your life in order to be that kind of man or that kind of woman. Paul is looking at them and saying, I exhorted you and I pushed you and I moved you forward because this is not your home. I pushed you forward for other reasons because you are a member of a different kingdom. God has called you into that kingdom for his glory. So to be a good citizen of that kingdom, the manner in which we walk, or better yet, the manner in which we long to walk, should tell us something about who we are. And we should long to be holy and righteous before God. We should long to be blameless before them. And Paul even goes so far as to say, you should walk in a manner worthy of God. Worthy meaning not that you've earned your place before God, but worthy meaning suitable before God. If you belong to his kingdom, walk like you belong in his kingdom. If you belong to his glory, if you belong to the very glory of one whose characteristics are holy and righteous and blameless, and if it's love and, and honor and justice, then you ought to walk in such a way that you embody those characteristics as you go forward, even as Paul has already done. Paul has demonstrated that he lives his life according to the gospel in a certain way because it is the way that people who belong to the gospel ought to live. And then he turns around and says, and so shall you. You should live according to these principles. Notice that this is not a one-time thing. It's not that he has called you, but he is calling you. He calls you continually, present, ever is that calling. Be a citizen of my kingdom. Know my glory and live it out. We are to embody the very glory of God and what he has called us to participate in. And that is indeed the gospel. Our walking is an effect of our calling. It is indeed still a gift. Listen, friend, you are a citizen before you're a good citizen. But Paul wants you to be a good citizen. He wants you to be a good citizen of the United States. Sure, I don't really think that Paul cared much about that. But he certainly wants you to be a good citizen of heaven. 
and he wants you to walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling upon your life. The, the church has indeed a great mission placed before it. It has been called to quell the idolatry of the world and to break down the gates of hell that keep the world enslaved with the gospel of God. We as sinners tend to run to and fro throughout the world, seeking a way to limit chaos and to limit destruction and to limit the death in the world. But all the while in doing that as sinners, all we ever do is increase our sin and get only more death and chaos from our efforts. But it is this free gift of life that comes to us in the gospel that tells us of a God who is in control, who kills death, who freezes people from oppression and sin. So let the message go forward with us with passion. Paul in Romans 1 speaks of his obligation to Greeks and barbarians, to free and to slave or to wise and unwise. That obligation is not placed on him from God. It's not as though he is now obliged by God reluctantly to go out and preach the gospel. When I was an intern as an engineer, there was one gentleman in the place that I worked, and every day that there was free food, he would make sure that the interns found out about it. It was his joy and pleasure to come and tell us. I'm telling you right now, God bless that man. Blessed are the feet of those who tell you that there are free donuts in the break room, man. And so he was happy to do it. He was a bringer of good tidings. He probably just wanted the, the young people to like him. I don't know what his deal was, but he was really excited. He came and found us first and told us there's free food in the break room. Listen, Paul felt an obligation, not because God placed an obligation upon him, but because it's that good of news. It's good news to go out and tell people. Let us be messengers like that. Let us be messengers that long to be seen as those who bring good tidings of great joy. May your compassion be felt and known. May you bear obligations to keep the gospel free. And may you press others further in the gospel. This is our mission, it is our obligation, and it is our joy in the gospel. Let's pray. And Father, we are grateful for those who have given of their lives that we might have the gospel with us today. If not for the many who have come before us who are willing to embody the gospel in their love for others and taking the burden of its message upon themselves and exhorting others behind them to do the same, we would not know of it. May we also have a passion to see your gospel go to the ends of the earth and around the corner for the making of disciples so that your glory might shine forth throughout the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.